Good evening. So, for those of you that haven't heard, Kathy has contracted COVID and Jackie's not feeling well. So, out of an abundance of precaution, he's staying home and quarantining for the next five days. So, you're stuck with me tonight and Sunday. <clears throat> and I got to tell you, I'm tired. I found out about this on Monday which is when they found out about it. Um, and I've been running like crazy ever since. Uh, tonight, of all nights, my granddaughter decided that I was the only person she wanted to be with, so she's probably in my office with Debbie screaming at the top of her lungs right now. She spilled water on me. Hopefully you can't see it from there, but it is water. Um, and... <laughs> And so I have uh, been, since Jackie, for a while now, uh, I have been studying the passages that Jackie's teaching on in case I have to fill in for him. And I have to tell you that around Daniel chapter 5, I started falling behind. Daniel chapter 6, I was really behind. So when I realized I was teaching on Dan Daniel chapter 7, I was in big trouble. And I've got to tell you, I'm not an eschatology guy. It's fun to read end times prophecy and try to figure out what it means. And it's certainly a significant portion of scripture, and we should study it. When I do study it, though, here's my problem. I'm tempted to run down endless rabbit trails where locusts become Black Hawk helicopters and statues at the United Nations become signs of the end of the world. In fact, I'm not even sure we can have accurate knowledge of unfulfilled prophecy, at least in the terms of knowing with certainty what it means for the future. There are always other messages in prophetic literature, though, messages of hope, messages of the power of God, of the wonder of our salvation, as well as warnings about our life now and the things that we should be watching out for. I fear, at least I know that I, sometimes miss those messages when I focus too much on the rabbit trails. So, uh, through no fault of anyone but myself, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this message, and I debated only doing half the chapter I know, though, that that makes it hard for the guy who has to follow the first half. If I was going to teach the first half and the second half, I might have done that. But when somebody else teaches one half and then you've got to pick up after him, it's sometimes a little bit difficult. So tonight, I'm going to do a sky-high view of the whole chapter. And I'm not going to do it anywhere near the justice that it deserves. I've spent the last two days reading more Daniel and Revelation than I've ever read in my entire life, and my head is spinning. <clears throat> Next week, Jackie may refer and review back uh, if he wishes, and actually I hope he does. <laughs> so hopefully by the time this is done, you won't be more confused than you are right now. So <clears throat> chapter 7 starts off in Daniel having a dream, and he says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. 
So the first year of the reign of Belshazzar was probably around 553 BC. This means that the events described in chapters 7 and 8 actually come before those described in chapters 5 and 6. Daniel would have been around 70 years old at the time of this vision, and the vision explained in this chapter parallels uh, the vision God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. In this vision, Daniel learned about six different kingdoms, four of them kingdoms of the world, one of them the kingdom of Satan, and the last one the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, I've borrowed my outline tonight from a Bible teacher that I really like named Warren Wearsby, and he summarizes this chapter in three sections. The first section is the kingdoms of this world. It's interesting to note that Daniel was asleep when God gave him these disturbing visions in a dream, and yet during this vision, Daniel was able to approach an angel and ask for an interpretation. We don't really know how this works, and frankly, it's another rabbit trail. Um, But it's in the text, so I thought it was worth noting. Somehow, in this dream, Daniel seems to be both dreaming and present at the same time. So starting in verse uh, 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, one uh, different from one another. The first was a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. If that's not a nightmare, I don't know what is. It's no wonder Daniel's troubled by this vision, but I think we can understand at least some of it um, by looking at the context and comparing it to the rest of Scripture and to the rest of Daniel. In the Bible, the sea is a symbol for chaos and disorder and hostility to God. The fact that these beasts come up out of the sea is the first clue that these beasts are evil. They stand for disorder and hostility against God. You know, from a human point of view, 
It seems to us like the nations around us, and sometimes even our own nation, are in control of their own destinies. But scripture tells us that God works through the nations to accomplish his will in his time. If there's one message that's emphasized in the book of Daniel, it's that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. That's from Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. The most high rules in the kingdom of men. It's a sobering thought, and it's a comforting thought, especially in the times that we're living in now. We look around, and it seems like the craziness and the evil doubles every day, and there seems to be no end to it. But we need to remember that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Daniel also writes that these beasts are different from one another. They're represented by different animals, and they stand for four different kingdoms. But what Daniel sees are not ordinary animals. They're hybrids. They're mutants. They've got parts of one animal and parts of another. This is the second clue that these beasts are evil. According to Genesis 1, God created creatures not as hybrids, but each according to their own kind. These hybrid beasts, these mutants, symbolize disorder. They represent evil human kingdoms, and they are the same kingdoms Nebuchadnezzar saw in his image from chapter 2. So this section of Daniel relates, again, the image that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, the image of the big statue with the head of gold and the chest of bronze and going on down to the feet of clay and iron. And Daniel is greatly disturbed by his vision, so he asks one of those who stood there, this is uh, most likely an angel, and this is where I was talking about when when uh, I said that Daniel seems to be dreaming and present at the same time. So he asked one of those who stood there to interpret. And I'm going to jump around a little bit in the text. So uh, verses 7, 15 through 18, we read this. It says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So let's go back and look at each one of these beasts individually. The lion with the wings of an eagle represents the empire of Babylon, which in Nebuchadnezzar's image was the head of gold. Uh, in scripture, Babylon is identified with both the lion and the eagle, and in fact, these emblems, these symbols would have been found all over Babylon. Daniel was very uh, uh, accustomed to seeing these symbols and seeing them uh, in reference to the empire of Babylon. The destruction of the lion being lifted up to stand like a man and then given the man's heart reminds us of how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar and made him live like a beast for seven years. During that time, God told Daniel that the Babylonian Empire would fall. So you remember that God uh, told Nebuchadnezzar that he was going to 
become like a beast, crawl about on all fours, and eat grass. And for seven years, he did just that. And then at the end of that period, God raised him back up, gave him a sane mind, and uh, he declared that God was the most high. So the lion with the wings of an eagle represents the empire of Babylon and refers back to Nebuchadnezzar. The bear with three ribs in its mouth symbolized the empire of the Medes and the Persians who defeated Daniel, or excuse me, who defeated Babylon. That's in Daniel chapter 5. And it parallels the arms and the chest of silver in the great image. Most... uh, Most scholars say that the bear was raised up on one side because the Persians were stronger than the Medes. So this represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians were the ones that had most of the strength and most of the influence, and that's why the bear was raised up on one side. There is much disagreement on the meaning of the three ribs that the bear carried in its mouth. The most common explanation is that they stand for Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon, nations that the Medes and Persians had conquered. The armies of the Medo-Persian Empire did indeed devour much flesh as they marched across the battlefields. So next comes the leopard with the four wings. And this represents Greece, and probably in particular Alexander the Great, and the way the armies of Greece swiftly conquered uh, the rest of the world resulting in an incredible expansion of the kingdom of Greece. Uh, Alexander the Great invaded Asia Minor in 334 BC, and within 10 short years, by the age of 32, which was young for a conqueror, he had conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire to the borders of India. According to the legend, he then wept because there were no more lands for him to conquer. Alexander's untimely death in 323 BC left him without a successor, and his kingdom was divided into four parts and given to four generals. That's what the symbolism of the four wings and the four heads is. Finally comes the terrible and dreadful beast in Daniel 7.7. This beast, so before I go too far into this, I should say that In particular, this beast, there are other interpretations. Uh, Some people think that this beast represents the entire kingdom of the Antichrist. Other people think that it represents, in part, the Roman Empire or a renewed Roman Empire, in other words, an evil empire, uh, in the the latter times. I tend to go with that uh, interpretation. I'm not sure where Jackie lands on this, so it'll be interesting to see what he has to say. So the dreadful and terrifying beast represents the Roman Empire as strong as iron and as terrifying as a beast on the rampage. The Roman armies swept across the ancient world and defeated one nation after another until the empire extended from the Atlantic Ocean east to the Caspian Sea and from North Africa north to the Rhine and the Danube rivers, Egypt, Palestine, and Syria were all under Roman domination. So Rome, at this point in history, is the single world power. And this terrifying beast corresponds with the legs of iron on Nebuchadnezzar's image, 
but the ten toes, remember the ten toes of clay on Nebuchadnezzar's image? They're represented in this, in this vision by ten horns. And often in scripture, a horn is a symbol of a ruler or of royal authority. Now this beast startles Daniel because nothing like it has ever been seen in any previous revelations. It seems clear that the beast represents the Roman Empire corresponding to the iron in Nebuchadnezzar's image. But the picture seems to go beyond history into the latter days because we see ten horns on the beast and these parallel the ten toes of the image in chapter 2. Revelation also mentions a beast with ten horns. And so uh, the prophecy is at the time pointing to the Roman Empire, but it's also moving forward into the latter days at this point. The horns represent ten kings or kingdoms that will exist in the last days. In Daniel's day, countries were ruled by kings, but the kingdoms spoken of here will be the nations, will be nations as we know of them. So we don't have kings so much that rule countries anymore, but we have nations with governments and presidents and, and some kings. Um, and so this, the, these kings are referring to nations today. Uh, it is out of this confederation of ten nations, which in some way is an extension of the Roman Empire, that the Antichrist will come and the final world kingdom will be organized and actively oppose God and his people. So, I don't really know how to make that clear. <laughs> so we got this beast. He has ten horns. And out of the ten horns comes one horn, a smaller one, and it removes three horns. Okay? So this is a prophecy of a coalition of ten nations headed by the Antichrist. He then conquers three additional Asian nations and begins to take his place as a dominant world leader. Daniel's dream shows us the sweep of ancient history, how one empire has replaced another, leading up to the establishment of the Roman Empire. The two visions, chapter 2 and chapter 7, make it clear that God knows the future and controls the rise and fall of nations and rulers. Daniel was then, at the time, living in the Babylonian Empire, but he knew that Babylon would be taken by the Medes and Persians, and that Greece would conquer the Medo-Persian Empire, and that Rome would eventually conquer all. He may not have known the names, but the prophecy told him that one empire would conquer another after another. The prophecy is history written before it happens. Daniel is getting this revelation of history before it happens. The second <clears throat> uh, division that Wearsby makes in this chapter is the kingdom of Satan. And in verse 7, 11 through 12, we read this. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
So the four kingdoms represented by the four beasts have already come and gone. However, verse 12 indicates that each kingdom continues to exist in some way within the succeeding kingdom that devoured it. So we have one kingdom who is conquered, but parts of that kingdom exist in the next kingdom. And then that kingdom is conquered, and parts of those two kingdoms exist within the next kingdom. And so it's, it's kind of like evil has never left humanity, and sometimes it appears that it just keeps getting stronger and stronger. Things get better for a time, it seems, but then evil rears its ugly head again. But Daniel saw in his vision something that wasn't revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. The last human kingdom on earth would be a frightful kingdom, unlike any of the previous kingdoms, and it would even declare war on God. This is the kingdom of the Antichrist, described in Revelation 13 through 19, an evil kingdom that will be destroyed when Jesus Christ returns to earth. This judgment was told in Nebuchadnezzar's vision as the stone cut out without hands that destroyed the image he saw. Daniel then seeks further clarification from this angel. And in verse 19, we read, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus, said, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So I don't really want to get into the time, times, and half a time because that's leading into the three and a half years of the tribulation. Jackie's going to be way better equipped to talk about this than me. If you really want to dig into this stuff, I would suggest you read uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and then go to Revelation and look at chapters 13 through about 17. Then you'll be really confused, and you can come back and ask Jackie. <laughs> so let's see what we can pull out of this at this point. So the little horn, the little horn that has a mouth and eyes and and removes three of the other horns, is the Antichrist. It represents the last, the last world ruler. This final world ruler will be both a counterfeit Christ and an enemy who is against Christ. 
John described the appearance of this man of sin in Revelation 13, 1 through 10. According to Daniel, the Antichrist has to overcome the power of three other rulers to be able to do what he wants to do and what Satan has planned for him to do. The mention of his eyes suggests a symbolism that he has a remarkable knowledge and skill in planning. He also will be a man skilled in using words, thus the horn is speaking, and be able to promote himself so that people follow him. He will blaspheme God and ultimately convince the unbelieving world that he is God. He will become the ruler of the world and will control not only the economy and the religion, but also seek to change the times and the laws. <clears throat> According to Daniel 7.25 and Revelation 13.5, his dictatorship will last for three and a half years, a significant period of time in prophetic scriptures. It's stated as time, times, and half a time. That's typically translated as three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. So the scenario seems to look like this. The Antichrist will be leading one nation in a union of 10 nations. He'll be part of a consortium of countries and he'll be leading one of those 10 nations. He will overcome three other nations and then, with the help of Satan, move into becoming a world dictator. We'll learn more about this as we go through the remaining chapters of Daniel. <clears throat> And we'll probably also get more confused. Um, the third kingdom that Wearsby talks about is the kingdom of Christ. And, and this is the part of the text that I think we really need to place our focus on. The prophecies are important. Don't get me wrong. And, and gaining an understanding, at least a basic understanding, is important for us because it encourages us. It gives us hope. It teaches us what to look for. Um, and because it's part of scripture. But the kingdom of Christ is the one that we really need to put our focus on. And Daniel doesn't go into all the details that John shares in the book of Revelation, but he does assure us that the kingdom of Satan and his counterfeit Christ will be defeated and destroyed by Jesus. Verses 26 and 27 we read this, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now there's a picture, there's a prophecy that we can pin our hope on. And one of the things I want you to come away with from this particular passage is that this, this kingdom, this greatest kingdom will be given. It's going to be given to the people of God and they will possess it. It becomes their kingdom. And in that kingdom, the people of God will reign with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Daniel 7 reassures us that our sovereign God is in control even of the mightiest of human empires. 
Even, you know, we look around today and we think the United States is pretty powerful. In the time of Rome, Rome was bigger and way more influential than we are today. And we may get disheartened when we hear of war and persecution around the world, and certainly there's a lot of that going on, isn't there? We may fear for our lives and that of our loved ones when we hear about riots, disease, and financial disaster. We may get discouraged when we ourselves are persecuted. But here's what I think is most important from Daniel chapter 7. In this passage, in this chapter, God encourages us. God is saying, take heart. Things are not what they seem. The things that you see are not the whole picture. God is still sovereign. He is still in control. Things may not be the way we want them, but God's sovereign. God knows what he's doing. And it's true. He still allows evil human kingdoms to exist. They exist even today. Certainly our country is well on its way to becoming an evil human kingdom. And even he allows those kingdoms to harass and persecute God's people. But at the end of time, he will even allow the Antichrist to attack his church. But here's the thing. God tells us, don't give up hope. He's in control. Deliverance is near. When the persecution reaches its climax, God will step in and judge the nations. He will totally destroy the wicked human rulers and kingdoms. And then he will establish his perfect kingdom on earth. He will give this perfect kingdom to his son, Jesus Christ, and to those who follow him. It's a wonderful future that awaits God's people. And that's better than any rabbit trail we could spend time on. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful for your word, and I'm thankful for the prophetic scriptures, as difficult as they are to understand. I find in them great hope. I see the difficult times that are ahead facing the world and the church, but in the midst of those times, I see both your warnings and your promises. Your warnings to keep our eyes open and attentive and to be aware of what's going on around us. Your warnings to commit our lives to Jesus and to living the life that you have called us to. And your promises of of redemption, your promises of punishment to those who've lived and profited by evil. Your promises of a kingdom for each one of us who love and follow Christ. That gives me great hope in the midst of the craziness in this country, the craziness around the world. I can read these scriptures and I can come away with hope. I know that no matter how bad things look, no matter how bad things get, no matter what troubles and trials I may face, I know that you are still sovereign. I know that your plans are working out and that they will be accomplished in your time. And for this, I am truly grateful. God be with us as we leave here today. I pray for those in the congregation who are struggling with COVID and who are sick and not feeling well. 
I pray, Lord, that you would protect the rest of us from the spread. I pray, God, that um, you would just continue to encourage and strengthen us through your word. May, be, may we be people this year who are committed to your word so that we may know your will and be given the strength to do it and in the midst of all of that to have hope and faith that your good purposes will in the end win out. We thank you, God, for your many blessings and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.